We're going to be in Psalm 9. I'll give you all a second to turn there. To the choir master, according to Mithlaban, a psalm of David. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he has judged the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction for those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snares in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace City. I'm Richard, one of the elders here, and I am excited to be preaching this morning. I've been sitting in Psalm 9 for a few weeks now, and there's a lot of truth and encouragement that the Lord has for us in there, and I'm excited to share it. In the book, the, the Hiding Place, which you may have read in school many years ago, you may vaguely remember, um, Corrie ten Boom, uh, a Dutch Christian, tells the story of her family hiding in their family home, um, Jews and Dutch underground that were hiding from the Nazis. After some time, her home was raided by the Gestapo, and Corrie and her family ended up in prison. And eventually, she and her sister, Betsy, were moved to the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp. In the book, she describes the first night in the barracks at Ravensbrück. And I'm going to read a passage from the book here. Suddenly, I sat up, she writes, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. We scrambled across the intervening platforms heads low to avoid another bump, and dropped down to the aisle and edged our way to a patch of light. Here, and here another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us. Show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly that it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer. 
before we asked, as he always does, in the Bible this morning. Where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. We were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving uh, Skivinigan. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. It seemed written expressly to Ravensbrück. Go on, said Bessie. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. To one another and to all, uh, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her, and then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here. Since we're packed so close, that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Uh, thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. <laughs> thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between the piers of bunks and gave thanks for the fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. We're in the Psalms this summer. The, the Psalms are the divinely inspired prayer and songbook for the people of God, originally by and for Israel, and now, by extension, for all of us. Psalms show us how to pray and how to worship in different situations. They teach us what to focus on about ourselves, about others, and about God in these different situations. So to get the most benefit from a psalm, we need to understand what's the situation. You know, what is it talking about? And then how is it showing us how to pray and, and worship in response to that situation? So I think Psalm 9 gives us guidance about how to respond in two situations. And let's see if you can relate to one or both of these. So here are the two situations that Psalm 9 addresses. Number one, um, tells us what to do when God has accomplished something in your life. Anybody can relate to that? Has God done something in your life at some point? Uh, second, when you need God to accomplish something in your life. So if you somehow can't relate to the first one, you can almost certainly relate to the second one because most of us need God to do something in our lives. So basically, all the time. Uh, so before we dive into what Psalm 9 tells us to do pretty much all the time, uh, a quick note about Psalms 9 and 10. So we're preaching this summer through Psalms 1 through 12. The Bible didn't originally have the chapter and verse markings that we have now. Those were added by later translators and in helpful ways a lot of times. Um, what's interesting about Psalms 9 and 10, though, is they were originally one thing because they're a Hebrew acrostic. 
You, know, um, you may have done an acrostic in school many years ago. That's like the first line starts with A, the second line starts with B, the third line starts with C. Nine and 10 are that in Hebrew, which we don't see in the English, but it's there and it says these were probably one thing. Um, but translators split them into two Psalms because there's kind of a change in tone halfway through between what we're talking about today in nine and what Matt will be preaching next week in 10. So there are some details in nine that I'm not going to get into this week because there's a lot there, and Matt's going to be kind of calling back to those next week from 10. And there's a little bit in 10 that we're going to point at this week because it relates to what we're doing in nine. So you'll see some connections between those two. All right, let's dive into Psalm 9. Psalm 9 contains a what, a how, and a when. What we should do, how we should do it, and when we should do it. We've already talked about the when, which is when God has done something for you, or when you need God to do something for you, so basically all the time. So this is a broadly applicable psalm, <laughs> right? Um, and then we get the what right away in the first half of verse 1, which is give thanks to the Lord. So basically all the time, give thanks to the Lord, which is what we saw Corey and Betsy Ten Boom discovering in the worst of circumstances in a concentration camp. Uh, the whole rest of the psalm is the how. It's, okay, how do we give thanks to the Lord all the time in all circumstances? So we're going to spend the whole rest of the sermon digging into the how. Um, I think there are four different hows in this psalm, four different ways to approach giving thanks to God in all circumstances. And we're going to look at each of those, how they apply to David and how they apply to us individually and as a church. So how number one, give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart. So that's the first how, with your whole heart. The phrase whole heart shows up not just all over the Psalms, but really all over the whole Bible. Now, we use heart to mean pretty much our feelings, right? In biblical Hebrew, though, the word heart was bigger than that. It was more like your whole inner person. Um, it encompassed emotions, yeah, but also the mind and the will. There really wasn't a separate word for the brain or the mind in Hebrew writing. They'd say heart, and they would mean all of those things together. So direct translation is often the, the inner man or inner person. So the phrase, you know, with your whole heart in this context, give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart, means give thanks as a whole undivided person. Jesus picks up this theme in Matthew 22 when he's asked by the Pharisees, which commandment out of the whole law is the one? Like, what's the greatest of all the commandments? If we're only going to follow one, which one should we follow? And he responds, quoting Deuteronomy 6. He says, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's like, with all your heart and with all of that part of your heart and all of that other part of your heart. Like, really doubling down on, so you don't misunderstand, all of you is how you should love God. Of course, this is hard. It's hard enough to be undivided when you're looking at a menu in a restaurant. I don't know if I want this or I want that. <laughs> Let alone when it comes to giving thanks to the Lord, especially in difficult circumstances. I mean, really, it's more than hard. It's impossible to do in our own strength. And as with many things, the Bible gives us hope about that. And we can even look back to Old Testament prophecy about this. Uh, so the end of Jeremiah 24, God's describing what he's going to do in his people after he brings them back from exile in Babylon. And he says in Jeremiah 24, 7, 
I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The whole heart that God gives them, God puts in them. And then the New Testament shows how Jesus has perfectly lived this out in a way none of us could on our behalf, and then puts his Holy Spirit in us so we can continue to live it out now. Um, Several places, but Romans 8, 3, and 4 is a good example. Paul writes, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So it's the spirit in us that makes this possible. Jesus was the only person in all of history who ever lived fully wholeheartedly towards God. But by living and dying on our behalf and by putting his spirit in those of us who follow him, he fulfills that prophecy from Jeremiah. He like puts that heart in us. He makes it possible for us to return to God with a whole heart, not in our own power, but dependent on his. Of course, God doesn't force us to return to him with a whole heart. He gives us freedom to participate in the work that he's doing or not. And once you make that initial decision to trust and follow Jesus, to say, I'm in on this work that you're doing, I think the other three hows in Psalm 9 show us how to cultivate that wholeheartedness in our lives. When we observe our hearts are divided towards the Lord, as is often the case, we can follow these other three hows. So let's move on to the second half of verse 1 where we get our second how. Give thanks to the Lord, and here it is, by recounting all his wonderful deeds. By recounting all his wonderful deeds. Remembering is a big theme in the Bible and particularly in this psalm. Um, In biblical language, to remember is to call to mind and then dwell on a thing. It's more than like, oh yeah, I just remembered I need to get milk when I'm at the store, which is just kind of this flash of memory. It implies more focus and more reflection and often action. One Old Testament scholar puts it like this, um, remembrance is an understanding of the reality of the past in such a way that the events of the past become a force in the present, producing some activity of will or of body or of both. I'll read that again real quick. Remembrance is an understanding of the reality of the past in such a way that the events of the past become a force in the present, producing some activity of will or of body or both. So, for example, in the Ten Commandments, when God tells Israel, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, it's not just have this idea in your mind that the Sabbath is a thing. He's telling them, because you remember why the Sabbath exists because I rested when I created, because I gave you this thing, because it's time set aside to turn your hearts back to me, all those things and more, behave differently every time that Sabbath day comes around. So it's a a much richer definition of remembering. The other place it becomes clear in the Bible that something different is going on with the word remember is how often the Bible talks about God remembering and sometimes God forgetting. And we, we know from the whole of Scripture that God is omniscient, all-knowing. So he's not forgetting to pick up the milk like we might. There's something different going on there. <clears throat> In Psalm 8, which we looked at last week, there's this phrase, 
what is man that you are mindful of him? The Hebrew word <clears throat> that gets translated mindful there, zakar, is actually the same word that's usually translated remember. So what is man that you remember him is essentially that passage in, in Psalm 8. So God's doing this kind of remembering towards us. He's thinking about uh, how he's made us in his image and then acting accordingly. In this psalm, we see that God will remember the cry of the afflicted in verse 12, will remember the needy in verse 18, and the implication there is that he's not just aware of the need, but he's going to do something about it. He's dwelling on it in order to act, in order to do something. Uh, And then we see this contrast in the psalm with the idea of forgetting, like in verse 17, the wicked are those who forget God. It's the very definition of being wicked is... Um, doing the opposite of the remembering, like keeping God out of your mind so you can act accordingly. Ironically, the fate of the wicked, which you see in verses 5 and 6, is to be forgotten. There's a nice play on words there. You have blotted out their name forever and ever, and the very memory of them has perished. Like, forget God and you get forgotten is kind of the the play on words there. This same remembering and forgetting theme continues all the way into Psalm 10, so you're going to see it again next week as Matt preaches on Psalm 10. Now, the word in verse 1 isn't exactly remember, it's recount. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. To recount means to remember in the way we've been talking about, and more than that, once you've done that, it means to remember out loud, to tell others about it. And we see this all over Psalm 9. Verses 3 through 6 are David recounting what God has already done to rescue David from his enemies. Verses 7 to 10 are David recounting God's character, like who he is, remembering it and telling other people about it, including us. Um, Verses 15 through 20 are David remembering God's promises about what he's going to do in the future. So there's kind of this past present or eternal and future dimension to the remembering and recounting throughout the psalm. And I think the same thing can apply to us, like thinking about what has God done for you? Who is God to you always and forever? What are you counting on him to do in the future? You can remember and recount and dwell on all of those things, and it's a way to give thanks to him. The call to worship that we do at the beginning of every service every Sunday is a collective practice of recounting God's wonderful deeds in order to move our divided hearts towards wholeness. Most of us come in on Sunday mornings pretty scattered from the week that came before, sometimes just from getting ourselves and our families ready and getting out the door and getting here. (laughs) Especially if you have young kids, you probably don't come in with like undistracted whole heart towards God. And that's okay. He, he knows how we're made, and he knows how we're broken. Uh, by deliberately turning our attention to what God has done as we read usually a psalm together, we begin to realign our hearts towards him. We remember and we recount together. When we sing songs together about what God has done, we're remembering and we're recounting. And it changes us from the inside out, but it also changes the people around us as they hear us sing. For example, when we sang this morning, our God is the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains. You and I needed to remember that truth about Jesus' death on the cross 
and somebody near you needed to hear you sing it. Maybe they couldn't even sing it today for some reason, but you singing it over them made it land in a different way. Maybe you needed to hear somebody near you sing it to have it really hit your heart. When we take communion each week, as we're going to do in a few minutes, we're remembering and we're recounting what Christ has done for us on the cross. Now, of course, you don't have to wait for the call to worship each Sunday to start remembering and recounting. It's not like just an hour and a half every week where we do this. Uh, If you do wait for Sunday morning as the main time of remembering, it's going to be pretty hard to get to a place where you're really engaging with a whole heart. There's definitely something special about how we gather and remember and recount God's wonderful deeds together, and that's why the Bible says don't give up gathering each week. But it's so much better if we back up and build this habit and preparation into our lives. What what we get, just to put it kind of transactional in a way that's not totally accurate, but bear with me a minute, what we get out of worship on a Sunday morning is a function of our preparation and our expectations. If you come in scattered expecting nothing, you will probably get what you expect. If you come in prepared to meet, to encounter God, to hear from Him, and expecting that that's going to happen, He responds to that. So if you're reading God's Word every day, um, and every time I'm up here I plug the five-day-a-week read through the whole Bible in a year plan, which you can search for because it's a wonderful way to do this. Um, If you're in the Word every day, uh, your heart's being unified throughout the week. If you're thinking about your Saturday night with Sunday in mind, if you're deliberate with your Sunday morning routine so you can maybe be here early, maybe at 935 standing over there praying with the worship team and other people who've done the preparation starting at 7 a.m. to make this thing happen, if you're welcoming visitors because God has welcomed you as they come in, uh, you're going into our worship together in a different way with more of your whole heart. Um, And Yeah, we depend on God to put that in us, but He also gives us a lot of freedom to participate or not. And everything we do throughout the week leading up to this, that preparation, which builds that expectation, changes what happens here on Sunday morning. It's just so much better than scrambling in late and scattered and like maybe getting some crumbs. Come in with as much of your whole heart as you have control over. All right, so that was the second how, which is recounting God's wonderful deeds. Let's move on to the third how. Um, give thanks to the Lord by being glad and exulting in Him. That's the first part of verse 2. This one's kind of surprising, where the last how, recount God's wonderful deeds, was about what we do with our minds and with our voices. This one is about what we do with our emotions. And in our culture, we tend to think we're a passive participant, kind of subject to our emotions. They just happen. And often we think and talk like they're the most true thing about us. They're the most definitive thing. Like how we feel is the most true thing because I can't do anything about it. I might be able to think something different, but I feel what I feel. But in verse 2 here, David is placing his will over his emotions. He's saying, I will be glad and exult in you. The in you part of that is really important. 
The idea here is that there's something about God himself that should provoke specific emotions in us when we encounter it. Again, our, cultural, our culture struggles with this. Emotions, are, we believe, are just what they are. They're not right or wrong. But even in this culture, if you're kind of bristling at this idea of your will over your emotions, uh, we still have this idea that some emotions are sort of rightly ordered towards things and some are not. Let me give you a, a trivial example. If you sit down with somebody to watch a couple of movies and you put on National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, yeah, a classic Christmas movie that my wife insists on uh, every Thanksgiving <laughs> and several times throughout the Christmas season. Um, if you put on Christmas Vacation and your friend sitting with you is weeping the whole time, you might be wondering what's going on there because that doesn't feel like the right emotion in response to that comedy. Conversely, if you put on Schindler's List and your friend is laughing the whole time. <laughs> now, I have to be careful with this one because Don and I got engaged moments after watching Schindler's List together. Um, but, <laughs> you know, those moments that make you realize what's important in life. <laughs> but if you're laughing throughout Schindler's List like it's a comedy... Again, something's wrong. We recognize that there's a rightly ordered emotion in response to the tragedy of the Holocaust and the, the evil that's portrayed in that movie. And it's not laughter, right? So there, there are right emotions and wrong emotions in response to certain things. So David is saying one way to give thanks with your whole heart is to have rightly ordered emotions towards God, specifically being glad and exulting in him. And notice, this is really important, it's not be glad and exult in your circumstances, as the Ten Boom Sisters illustrated for us in the excerpt earlier, and as the prophet Habakkuk illustrates nicely in Habakkuk 3. Um, so this is the end of Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18. He, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So Habakkuk, imagining uh, complete famine and wipeout of the crops and the livestock for Israel, which is symbolic of blessing in Hebrew literature. He's saying, even if all that goes away, yet I will take joy in the Lord. Habakkuk there and David in this psalm are finding their joy not in their circumstances, but in God himself, which means finding joy in God's attributes and character and presence. What are those? Well, I'll give a few examples. God's good. He's great. He's loving. Indeed, the Bible says he is love. He's holy and just. He's eternal. He's faithful. Though he made everything and sustains everything, he knows you and me personally and adopts us as his children. I could keep going. The Bible's packed with this, but you get the idea. If we can know and be known by a God like that, if he welcomes us into his presence, it's pretty clear there are rightly ordered and wrongly ordered emotions in response to that. 
and they look like joy and gladness, even in the most difficult circumstances. If you're not feeling that joy in the Lord, I think the right move is to ask Him to reveal Himself to you more clearly, to show you His attributes and His character, and to give you a sense of His presence. And that's not a prayer that God's going to reject. Psalm 147 says, the Lord delights in those who fear Him. Again, fear here is an emotion response towards God, and fear here means have the right amount of awe, like in His presence. (laughs) He's bigger than I can imagine, and I'm pretty small. And so the Lord delights when people respond to Him uh, appropriately, and our emotions are rightly ordered towards Him. So He delights in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. So if, if you're not feeling that, that joy, that gladness, that exultation in the Lord, take that to Him and say, stir that up in me, Lord. Show me who you are so that I would feel that, so I wouldn't be you know, laughing at the tragedy and weeping at the comedy, but I would be rightly ordered towards you. That's part of bringing our whole heart. Now, this brings us to the last how, number four. Give thanks to the Lord by singing praise to His name. This is the last half of verse two. I'm aware not everyone thinks of themselves as a singer. So this is a a tricky one for me to preach on because you're used to seeing me standing over there singing most Sundays because my role here is usually worship pastor and only occasionally preaching. But even as not all of us think of ourselves as singers, I'm sure the same thing was true in biblical times. There were some people who were walking around like a Disney princess singing all day long, and birds singing along with them, I'm sure. Uh, and some of them were probably like the, the Levites and the sons of Korah for whom that was the job. I can also imagine some sons of Korah that were like, yeah, my brothers love singing, but... It's just what I do for work here. There were probably, just like now, just like some of you, uh, people who are more comfortable sitting or standing meditatively while someone else does the singing. (laughs) Yeah, some of you are nodding, like, ah, you're talking to me. Uh, Yeah. So, let's look to how the Bible talks to that mixed population of people of God. Well, the Bible is not subtle about this. (laughs) Sorry. The command for God's people to sing praise to Him is all over the Bible, from Exodus all the way to Revelation. Uh, There's even a little bit about singing in Genesis, just not the command yet. Uh, The Bible contains over 400 references to people singing and over 50 direct commands to sing. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) In fact, it, it goes further than that. We're made in the image of God, and the Bible shows us a God who sings. Did you know this? It's not just God's people singing. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God rejoices over His people with loud singing. So He has joy in us, and His joy overflows into singing, which is pretty cool. Uh, The picture of heaven that we see in Revelation involves a lot of singing. Uh, Yeah, so we can't get away from this. Why? Well, singing engages us as a whole person in a different way from just meditating or praying or speaking, um, because it it uses our whole body. It engages us emotionally. God made us to respond to music. Even if you're not a singer, you've probably been moved by music before. There's something there. Um, 
when we combine true words with music that fits the words in a particular culture, this is a thing that varies with culture, the words reach us more deeply. We experience the truth of them more than we would with just the bare words. Singing also builds unity in a tangible way. When we sang together earlier this morning, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Which is a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is nobody. Um, When we sang that together, we were aligned in a different way around serving an unstoppable, all-powerful, good God in a way that we're not aligned when you nod along with me just saying that right now. We're aligned mentally as we all sit here and say, yeah, God is like that. Who can stop him? Nobody can stop him. But when we all sang those words together, it was different. It was closer to our whole hearts aligned around that great truth. In a few minutes, when we raise our voices to sing together, how great is our God? We're going to be unified as a people who serve a great God in a different way than we are right now when you just mentally assent to our God is great, as I say it. If you don't think about yourself as a singer, this is going to be an exercise of the will, of obedience. But I want to encourage you that there's a great blessing on the other side of that obedience because God really did make us to find joy in singing. And the way the the fall, the brokenness in creation is expressed in each of us is that different parts of us are more kind of distorted from how God made us than others. And what's uh, broken one way in one of us isn't in another. And as we all find restoration in Christ in that, we become more and more who He made us to be. And part of that apparently is singing. And by the way, as a worship leader, one of my favorite things to hear in worship is the sound of someone who's not a singer, a singer, um, singing with their whole heart and their whole strength. And I know other singers in the room, I see you nodding along with me right now. Um, because those of us who think of ourselves as singers can find ourselves singing just because we like singing. And there's a risk there. that <laughs> I like this song and I'm just kind of mindlessly singing along with it. But when somebody who doesn't think of themselves as a singer, and I know it because I'm standing here every week and I see you, uh, <laughs> when, when I see, like, finally that song comes around that hits your heart in a way you can't help but sing along and your mouth's moving maybe reluctantly a little bit and then more, um, that's an exercise of obedience and truth, and it's so much more beautiful than us singing because we like to sing. Now, the whole phrase in verse 2 isn't just, I will sing. It's, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. In Hebrew culture, names were a big deal. They were representative of the whole person, their status, their attributes, their story. And important figures in the Bible often get renamed when God does something significant in their life. Like Abram becomes Abraham, Jacob becomes Israel, um, Simon becomes Peter, Saul becomes Paul. There's a pattern over and over again. You get a new name as God makes you a new person. So when David says, I will sing praise to your name, he's sort of rolling up the previous three hows, and because singing engages our whole heart in a different way, and God's names reflect his attributes, his character, his deeds, helping us remember and recount those. God reveals himself with many different names in the Bible. In a moment, I'm just going to list a handful of them, and as I do, 
think about how God has revealed himself in your life in a way that fits that name and let that stir up praise in you. So first, there's God's covenant name, Yahweh, or the Lord, I am. The Lord most high. The Lord our provider. The Lord our healer. The Lord our peace. The Lord our shepherd. The Lord our righteousness. The Lord who is here. The God who sees me. The mighty one. Wonderful counselor. Prince of peace. Everlasting father. The lion of Judah. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, God who saves. This is the God that we sing praise to. As we wrap up and move into communion and singing, let's take a moment to reflect. Um, So as I ask these questions and kind of guide you through prayer, you can maybe close your eyes, bow your head, reflect a little bit. First off, how is your heart divided? What makes it hard for you to give thanks to the Lord with your whole heart? As you think about that, pray the prayer that David prays in Psalm 86. Unite my heart to fear your name, God. So think about how it's divided. Pray that he would unite your heart towards him. What wonderful deeds has the Lord done for you? Take a moment to remember those and meditate on them. What promises do you need to remember that you're counting on him to fulfill with wonderful deeds in the future in your life? Remember those. When you consider God's attributes and character, when you sit in his presence in this moment, what emotions does that stir in you? Do you find yourself glad and exulting in him? And if not, ask him to show more and more of himself in his presence and to make himself bigger than your circumstances. Finally, as we return to singing in a moment, take this opportunity to put the psalm into practice right away. Use the songs to bring your whole heart to recount the Lord's wonderful deeds, to be glad, to exult in him, to praise his name. Let's pray.